You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Lacrosse Boots. Now, if you haven't heard yet, uh, this is me telling you, you need to take a look at the new boots from Lacrosse, and they fall under the Navigator series. Now, what they've done is they've taken the best parts of a rubber boot and the best parts of your traditional hiking and hunting boot, and they've mashed them together to come up with this new line of boots from lacrosse and that is the navigator series now they have the women's wind rows they have the men's wind rows and then they have the atlas the atlas series within that as well so go to lacrossefootwear.com and check out this new line of boots that they have i've been using mine for a couple weeks now and i am very impressed with the the fit and the feel and i can't wait to get them in the woods this hunting season and uh, give them a trial run so lacrossefootwear.com check them out W Hunting Supply is your go-to source for the best in dog training systems and supplies, as well as equipment for hunting, houndsmen, and women. We've served dedicated dog owners and avid hunters across the nation since 2000, and it's our mission each day to continue offering you exceptional products and outstanding customer service. At W, we're not just suppliers. We own and train our own hounds, and we regularly use the products we sell. We're proud of our hard-earned knowledge, and we're happy to share it with you, because when you shop our WU, you're not just our customer, you're part of our community. And W just launched a really cool app, Steve. You can download it in your app store on either your iPhone or Android, any smartphone. And all kinds of content in there from training tips and tech support. You can schedule uh, actual maintenance for your tracking device right from that app now. Sign up for an account, download that app, and start tracking W anywhere that you have cell phone connection. And you can find all information about W Hunting Supply at www.dusupply.com. Houndsman XP Podcast with your host, Steve Fielder, and me, Chris Powell. If you're ready to up your game to extreme performance, sit back, buckle up, and hang on for another exciting episode of Houndsman XP. actually escaped from the Texas death house in Huntsville, Texas. Uh, and in fact, today he escaped from the death house. This is after Bonnie Clyde had been killed. The same day, John Dillinger was killed in Chicago. He says in Texas, he says some people 
say, you know, that the death penalty is wrong. He said, in Texas, if you kill somebody, we will kill you back. <laughs> and, and he said, we're not only, if you got three credible witnesses, we'll put you in the express lane. <laughs> <laughs> Your name is certainly synonymous with Texas coon hunters and and nationally with the dream walker breed and so many um, hats that you've worn down through the years. But how did that all start? Describe the Texas state hunt. It, it was more like, a, I always thought of it as a modern day version or a Texas modern day version of the old rendezvous that the mountain men back in the Jim Bridger, Kit Carson days. It was more like a happening. The more exclusive you try to be, the smaller you're going to be. Uh, the, the, more the more inclusive you are, the bigger you're going to be. Welcome to the Houndsman XP podcast. As always, we have our man from the south with us today and resident author and coonhound expert steve fielder how are you today steve uh salutations greetings and uh and all that good stuff i'm doing good I, as always it's a good day to be alive uh as the weatherman always says it's sunny in florida so uh we have no uh shortage of sunshine we have no shortage of humidity. We have no shortage of alligators, cottonmouths, armadillos, and tourists. So, and you can put those in the order of which you like the best or which you hate the most. But <laughs> at any rate, that's Florida, and I'm in it, and I'm glad to be here. Well, good. Good deal. Well, I'll tell you what, we've been having some ex extremely dry weather for southeastern indiana and we're losing a lot of leaves already so and the temperatures are dropping so it's starting to feel like fall and i'm pretty wound up about that and uh just returned from a bear hunt in arizona and that was an awesome experience and we'll we'll get into that some other time but uh uh steve you went out and recruited an old friend of yours and uh he's also an author and i'm just going to hand this off to you and let you do the introduction of our guest today well, it's my privilege to introduce this guy in our little pre-show remarks. He made reference to me being the elder of the two of us. So I kind of like the way you said my old friend there. <laughs> um, this this fellow and I go back to my UKC days. And uh, when I was, uh, for lack of a better term, in charge of the field operations department there, it was my privilege to hire some really great guys uh, to serve as field reps. And at that time, you know, the world championship was building uh, very rapidly and we needed representation all around the country. And we were talking earlier and we're not sure whether uh, he was already aboard when I came uh, to UKC in January of 1983. But if not, he came along soon after and it it's just fantastic uh, for me to introduce our guest today, Sid Underwood from Texas. How are you doing this morning, Sid? Well, I'm doing fine. How are y'all doing? 
We're doing well, great. We're, we're great. We're great. We're doing what we do, and that's just, you know, kind of running our mouths here this morning. <laughs> but <laughs> no, you're a guy that I've wanted to lasso from this for this podcast uh, since the very beginning. And, um, you know, our times down through the years, Sid, have been really uh, good times uh, for me. I've always enjoyed uh, being in your company and, and, uh, you're a man of few words uh, on uh, email and texting, but I'm, we're hoping to coax more words out of you t- today. And I know that you you have lots of words because I went back and reread your book here, and there's 200 and some pages on them. And like old Bubba back in West Virginia, uh, they were talking about uh, you know his education, and he says, "Well, I know." what's in every book and every library in the world. And they said, Oh yeah, you gotta be kidding. He said, no, so words. So (laughs) (laughs) we're going to try to get some words out of you today, my friend. Uh, Hey, you know what? Let's just as a means of, um, uh, of introduction here for you, let's talk about, uh, who Sid Underwood is first. And, uh, uh, talk a little bit about where you were born, where you grew up, where you're living now. Just get that out of the way, Sid. Uh, you want to start that off for us? Yeah, I'll give you a capsule of, of who Sid Underwood is and was. Uh, I was born in Fort Worth and then uh, was actually uh, reared or was a native of, of Florence Hill, which is an unincorporated farming community. Uh, in southwest Dallas County. If you looked at a map of the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex and located Grand Prairie, which is one of the what we call mid-cities between Dallas and Fort Worth, well, I grew up about uh, oh, about eight miles south of, of Grand Prairie, which where I grew up now is, you know, like so much down in, in the Metroplex area is part of Grand Prairie now. But when I grew up, it was a little rural community with cotton fields and creeks and and in fact, one creek uh, uh, notably was Fish Creek, uh, which uh, I guess we'll get into later. But it, in any event, uh, that's where I, I grew up. And then I uh, actually went to school there or my first three years, little rural community school, Florence Hill. My mother was a school teacher. She started teaching in the late 50s in Arlington, Texas. And so uh, actually some strings were pulled and from, from, from the fourth grade on. Uh, including through University of Texas at Arlington. I went to school. Uh, all my school days were in Arlington. So as far as getting me to young adulthood, that's that's the story. I see. Now, I, Arlington is where the baseball stadium is, right? Well, more importantly to me, it's where the football stadium is. <laughs> but you're, you're, you're correct. The, uh, the Rangers stadium, of course, is there, but AT&T stadium, the Cowboys stadium is, of course, adjacent to it. And, and in fact, uh, for those who are, follow sports, there is a new uh, Globe Black field being built there, you know, literally right in that same area. It's going to be a, a kind of a domed or semi-domed uh, stadium for baseball. And so, uh, anyway, yeah, it's all right there in Central Arlington. 
Well, I thought we were going to get through this podcast without talking about the Cowboys or mentioning them, but I, I, I see that we've done that already. And we've opened that door. I have to tell my funny little story. Back in the days before UKC, I was at a meeting in uh, at some kind of a trade show or whatever in Dallas, and we uh, went to a football game. And this was in the older stadium, I believe. This would be pre-1983. So has there been a, a stadium built since that time? No, well, the, the Cowboys score started off uh, in the, the old Cotton Bowl right there in you know Fair Park and near downtown Dallas. And they were there till 70, 71 time frame. And then that's when they went to uh, Texas Stadium, the one with the, you know, the famous hole in the roof stadium. That's where I went. Yeah. Yeah. And the the little funny story, and and, and then we can (laughs) move along, is that uh, they were playing the Rams, I believe. And uh, Tony Dorsett was playing at that time. And, um, after having a couple of beverages, I needed to go to the men's room and I got up and went to the men's room. And while I was gone, Tony Dorsett ripped off about a 90 yard run, uh, which I missed because we didn't have instant replay on the jumbotron back in those days. Um, but at any rate, that's my experience with, with, uh, well, well that's interesting. And, and, uh, hark back to those days if, if if the offense was on the field and Tony Dorsett was in the backfield that was never be a good time to go to the restroom <laughs> <laughs> that's right okay well you alluded to the fact well maybe I'm jumping ahead here but you alluded to the fact that this was an area a rural area at that time with cotton fields and creeks and stuff is that um you grew up uh, out there did you start hunting when you were a uh, a young youngster in that environment Yes, and, and, you know, when I was in single digits, I'd already started hunting. I mean, I remember killing my first dove when I was nine years old with my grandfather's old single-shot 20-gauge shotgun. So, yeah, I'd, I had been, in answer your question, I'd begun hunting uh, just kid. You know, we, we'd go out with our 22s or shotguns and hunt any and everything in the daytime. And then, uh, you know, as time went on, uh, I, for whatever reason, I got in, I had some little cur dogs that, that would run about anything. And I personally just got interested uh, in going out uh, at night with, with a little two-cell mm-hmm. flashlight, and, you know, and they'd tree possums and skunks and stuff like that. And so I guess it's, it's kind of uh, maybe that seed of being interested in hunting at night, you know, just came naturally to me. Yeah, well, I did jump ahead here in our outline, but uh, I think living in the country, that's how most of it, well, I actually lived on the edge of town, but it was right across the highway. I could consider it to be in a rural area. But let's go back here just a minute and talk about your vocation, your education, uh, that sort of thing, where you went to school and then how you got involved with the job that you were in for many years. Okay. Well, like I said, I went to school uh, through the University of Texas at Arlington and got my BA degree in English and minor in journalism. 
anyway, uh, I guess my main job after that, I'm not going to go through every job I've ever had, but the main job I first had uh, was in the newspaper business, and I worked for six years for the Arlington Daily News, which was one of the suburban dailies in the Dallas-Fort Worth uh, area. And uh, so then I had several other jobs, but in uh, the uh, I was mid-'80s, I had really, as a Metroplex, uh, and, and forgive me if I interchange that with Dallas-Fort Worth, but, but if, if you don't know, the Metroplex and Dallas-Fort Worth is one and the same. But in any event, um, I got to where it, I could see the handwriting on the wall with the growth of that area. So uh, I was trying to get out somewhere where I could still make a, a decent living, you know, for my family and everything, but also just be more back out in the country like I was used to. So... In fact, I had a coon hunting friend, past coon hunting friend, and we hunted other stuff in our young, young days named Bill Moore. And Bill had gone to work uh, down at uh, the Comanche Peak Nuclear Power Plant site uh, near Glenrose, Texas, southwest of the Metroplex. And so I just, I, on a whim, I called him one day and he said, well, he said, you know, I think there's an opening in the community relations public information group down here. And so sure enough, I made a call to the person who was in charge of that. And one thing led to another. And so consequently, uh, in 85, uh, then I went on down to Comanche Peak Nuclear Power Plant. And then for the next 30 years, that was that was my my calling there. And I did property management, emergency planning public information, community relations, number of things, but it was a wonderful, wonderful career. And, 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 and like I say, it was a more rural area. And so I was able to have a lot of, you know, great places to coon hunt and so on. So the wonderful experience for me. Well, and then since that time, since you retired, you've kind of picked up another job, haven't you? That's right. In my semi-retirement, I knew I wasn't going to sit, uh, but I also knew I wanted flexibility in whatever I did. So consequently, I guess maybe it's in my DNA because my mother was a lifelong school teacher, other than when she worked during the war, World War II, as a Rosie the Riveter for a few years. But other, uh, other than that, she was a school teacher. Anyway, I said, well, I'll try substitute teaching and see how I like that because I, I like the, the flexibility, yes or no. You don't have to. You can if you want to. And anyway, I, I, I found that I did enjoy it. I did like it. And so that in my semi-retirement, uh, just to break the cabin fever and, and give me something to, to do when I want to, I've been substitute teaching. Okay. Is that at the... Uh high school level or elementary or or college or what? Initially, early on, I just basically did it from the, from the littlest to the biggest. And then over time I I did graduate more towards uh, junior high and high school. And and now that I'm up here in Lamar County, I've really simplified. I really basically only do one, one district up here, the North Lamar district and pretty much it's pretty much exclusively high school. I see. Well, that's got to be a challenge in today's climate. I would, <laughs> I would say. Well, it, you know, it, uh, you know, and people say that, and it really is uh, on the one hand. But on the other hand, when you see, when you when you get into it, um, 
you know, for the most part, kids are still just kids. That they the, the the circumstances and the gizmos and things that they have now that we could have never even dreamed of. Of course, that's all different. But really, when you boil it all down, they're they're still just kids. Well, I live with a school teacher, so I understand uh, uh, <laughs> somewhat uh, of what you speak. <laughs> well. <laughs> Now, I want to, of course, with the journalism background, um, that's something that I, I never had any formal training in writing. And I've done a lot of writing over the years, but you, my readers will probably recognize the fact that I don't have a degree in journalism. My son did get a degree in journalism at Eastern Michigan University and all, but uh, somewhere in the 90s, um, and I don't know how far back we need to go with this, but uh, you wrote a book that uh, that impressed me to no end. When I first saw it, I said, Sid, man, uh, when did you have time to do all this research and put together this awesome uh, book? And And I want to set it up just a little bit, but I want you to talk about your book because I think it's very interesting to anybody. Um, as certainly uh, anyone that has talked about uh, uh, the uh, depression, desperados, and so forth, and uh, uh, I want to you to to tell me what inspired you to write this book, Depression Desperado, uh, the story or the chronicle of Raymond Hamilton. I think Chris has a, a question that he wants to jump in here with. And then I want you to discuss this a little bit with us, okay? Sure. Let's let's let our guests go ahead and get into that. I, I've always been fascinated with that that point in our history, and uh, I want to hear what he has to say. That was a good question. Well, okay. As I've mentioned before, I, I'm a native of southwestern Dallas County, and when I was growing up, um, of course, uh, everybody – Virtually everyone, anyway, knows the Bonnie and Clyde story, the two most famous of the West Dallas uh, desperados or outlaws. Well, uh, when I was growing up, because of where I grew up, uh, I kept hearing another name through the that my elders talked about when I was a kid growing up, Raymond Hamilton. This, Raymond Hamilton. That. Well, the, I came uh, over time. I, I, the reason I, I found out they did was because. Uh, Raymond Hamilton, who uh, later in his uh, career, if you want to call it that, was a, the, really the main Confederate of Bonnie and Clyde, or Clyde for sure. Um, he, in fact, part of his youth, he had some uh, some uh, step relatives out in southwestern Dallas County. Really, as a crow flies, not over about five miles from where where I grew up. And of course, this is way before my time, but but nonetheless. Uh, that proximity, and I had elders who had knew, who had known about that. They, in fact, some of them, uh, even after the Desperado days got going, uh, you know, they even saw Raymond Hamilton a few times running up and down those those roads. Uh, you've got to remember, it's a different era, and, and uh, uh, the communications weren't today. I mean, weren't then what they are today, and, and that sort of thing. So it was more or less just, yeah, we knew that was him, but. You know, nobody had a phone or anything, and so he, he would be gone by the time you could tell anybody, pretty much. Nonetheless, 
that's how it got started just in my mind. I said, well, Bonnie and Clyde's story's been told over and over, and I keep hearing this other story. So long story short, I got interested and got to looking into it. And at, at that time, his older brother, who was another one of the West Dallas Desperados, Floyd Hamilton, was still living. And so I got in top contact with Floyd uh, and he was kind of reticent initially to talk, but eventually I, I got him, kind of befriended him enough that I was able to, to interview him and talk to him and, and get some details and, of course, talk to many other people, uh, to say the least, in, in the course of this. But So that's kind of how it all got started. And long story short, uh, I started in 79 with the research, uh, and then I, and I was in a work-a-day world, of course, uh, during all that time with the family and so on and other activities to say the least too but uh but over time i did enough research and got enough put together and finally uh found a, a publisher that was uh, was interested and so in 95 is in fact this is it was in august of 95 so i guess this is kind of an anniversary time frame but in any in any event that's that's how it all came about as far as me uh getting the book researched written and published well sid uh i want you to give us just a synopsis of the book of the life of this uh character uh it was very interesting i read it when i first uh um first saw the book uh, and uh, is it still available can can our listeners get the book if they want to pick it yeah. up they can it the, the book is now i think you probably can go you know whether new or used maybe go on amazon or some of those other search places but having said that the actual the the the, the publishing house that has it now uh, is called wild horse media and wild horse media is of course on the you can go on the type in wild horse media and they're they're out of fort they're out of fort worth uh, and and it's available through Wild Horse Media. Okay, without getting into a lot of details, because we've got a lot of Coonhound area to cover today, unless Chris has something else, I'd like you to give us just a brief synopsis of the book. What are, what readers are going to going to find when they buy this book? Okay, well, it's it's kind of a cradle to grave story, a biography of, of Raymond Hamilton, and he was born in up in a, a southeastern Oklahoma, and then the family uh, gravitated eventually to West Dallas, which uh, was a rough, unincorporated part of the uh, the city back in those days. You got to remember in the day in those days, Dallas then was about the size of Waco, Texas now, it's a city of probably 100,000 at most. But in, in any event, so he, he got into that West Dallas scene and, of course, uh, got into eventually uh, with the likes of Clyde Barrow and some of them. He was a little younger than Barrow, but nonetheless, he got into a crime and then they just got into one thing led to another and they just got into some of the most sensational criminal episodes in the southwest certainly in the texas area and so this went on for a course of about four or five uh years in fact when and raymond hamilton's one of the few people in history that actually escaped from the texas death house in huntsville texas uh, and in fact the day he escaped from the death house and this is after bonnie and clyde had been killed the same day john dillinger was killed in chicago 
And so there's a front page of the, of the New York Times that talks about the Dillinger uh, killing in Chicago, being killed in Chicago, and Raymond Hamilton and some Confederates escaping the Texas death house the same day. And so uh, wow. he, uh, he kept going. He, Raymond, kept going about a year after that. He was subsequently finally captured again in Fort Worth. And he'd already been sentenced to hundreds of years in prison and also, uh, and, and, but was under the death penalty. And then when they finally captured him the second time, the readers might enjoy this story with these people on death row now who it takes years and years and years for their execution to occur. Uh, Raymond Hamilton was executed 35 days after he was captured the final time in Fort Worth. <laughs> at, 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 you know, he was only 21 years old, kind of like Billy the Kid type thing in, in, a, in kind of a modern era. So that's, that's the synopsis. That reminds me of a comedy routine by Ron White. If you know who I'm Ron exactly, White I is, exactly <laughs> he says in Texas, he says some people say, you know, that the death penalty is wrong. He said in Texas, if you kill somebody, we will kill you back. <laughs> yes. And he said, we're not only if you got three credible witnesses, we'll put you in the express lane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that, that is, that's a, that is a, great, a good story. And of course uh, it's a, uh, uh, compared to those old days, it's still a little convoluted now. But uh, but Ron White, he is a funny funny guy. Of course, I'm parochial and he's Texan. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, you know, as I have driven up, I think it's Interstate 45 there from Houston toward Dallas, and you got many years going to coon hunts at Fairfield and at Madisonville and places like that. Uh, you go by the Huntsville Prison there. I think is that not is it visible from the highway there? Uh, yeah, if you, I think if you know where you're looking, you can see part of yeah. it. It's uh, the 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 old timers. They called it the walls back in the day, but for the obvious reason, the walls right, around right. it. And that's Texas. what it was. Sparky was the name of that electric chair, wasn't it? Oh, Sparky was the name of the electric chair, and that uh, Raymond Hamilton and and others got to visit uh, one time <laughs> visit back in the day. <laughs> All right, Chris, you got anything before we leave the book? But yeah. this thing is really interesting, and I would highly recommend it to anybody who would like a really good read about some incredibly bad and crazy uh, youth gone wrong. Um, but it, it's very well done, Sid, and, and the research is, is obviously uh, amazing, and uh, I'd recommend it to anybody. Well, well, I appreciate that. I do have a question and maybe a statement, too. We talk about old Sparky. Part of Rising Sun history here in southeastern Indiana is that the uh, Red Oak, which the the original electric chair was built out of, was harvested right here in Ohio County. And uh, uh, we actually are one of our claims to fame is, is the uh, invention of what you know is old sparky so that's that's kind of an interesting tie between here wow i don't know if if the uh furniture company that invented that actually shipped one down to texas and that's what what uh our desperado died in or not but that's that's kind of an interesting side note but i've got a question so when you started researching in 1979 said was that just more of a uh something that piqued your interest or did you always have 
the goal of finally writing a book while you were while you were doing uh, the research? The goal of writing the book, uh, my interest had already been piqued, like I said, from hearing the stories uh, because of, of Raymond spent part of his youth out near where I grew up. Like I say, obviously, I wasn't around at the time, but 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 that that geographic proximity kind of that was the the, uh, the the genesis of all of it. But then. Uh, as, uh, with my journalism background and just interest in writing, and and and, and, and I'm just very interested in all kind of, all kinds of history. And so, nonetheless, that's kind of it. But but in '79, when I decided, hey, you know what, um, I, I think I'm going to write a book about this guy. And so that's that's how it, that's how it got started. And and um, fortunately, there were still Floyd Hamilton I mentioned, but others who were still around who remembered a lot of things about those times and. And obviously, I had a whole wealth of, of you know, ri- historical written data to go on to. Well, you know, the amazing thing to me, Sid, was you kept all this kind of under the radar as far as the Coonham world was concerned, because, you know, all of a sudden this book appears. And I said, what? <laughs> Look at this. You know? and, <laughs> well, I'm, I'm kind of an under the radar kind of guy, in case you hadn't already yeah. figured that out. <laughs> Well, that's true, but there's a tremendous lot that's going on under that radar, and I hope we can get into most <laughs> most of it today. Chris, are you ready to, to go into this uh, uh, Sid Underwood, the coon hunter? Absolutely. <laughs> well, Sid, you know, you touched on it a little bit earlier on about your uh, little cur dogs or your dogs that you were using there with your friends. Uh but let's talk about how, you know, your early involvement in, in coon hunting. It's something that you've been involved uh, with for many years. Your name is certainly synonymous with Texas coon hunters and and nationally with the Treen Walker breed and so many um, hats that you've worn down through the years. But how did that all start? It started uh, in 1962, March of 1962, in Lampasas, Texas, uh, down in central uh, Texas. Um, and I had a, a great uncle down there who we were celebrating his 75th uh, birthday. And he had a small ranch out, um, out uh, east of Lampasas, about a 400-acre ranch. And anyway, part of that weekend celebration was going to be a coon hunt, which I'd never been on. Uh, but, uh, a bunch of my cousins and I and other, uh, other relatives from various places were there for this weekend celebration. And so uh, part of that, as I said, was a coon hunt. There was a local coon hunter. His, his, I don't know his real given his first name, but his nickname was Snooks, like S-N-O-O-K-S Gan, G-A-N-N was his last name, but Snooks Gan was a local coon hunter. He had two red bone dogs, male red bones, Mike and Red. And so, I, you know, we as kids, we don't gun hunted all our lives. Uh, and, uh, we were very young, so I don't make mean to make that sound like we'd been out at it forever. But but anyway, we we weren't sure about that. You know, hunting with those dogs, those hounds. But uh, nonetheless, we went out there. And there was coons all over the place around my uncle's barns and out out in the woods as well. So that we we got several coons and 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 around the barn area. And then Mike and Red, we went out into the woods of the ranch itself and treed I don't know two or three coons that night. 
And while all of us who like to hunt and stuff enjoyed it, uh, uh, clearly for me, it just, I mean, it was, I mean, you, you talk about an epiphany. I mean, I don't know how else to say it, but, but I was just, I was just, I couldn't even think about anything else. I mean, that, that was just, it just, it just took me by storm. And, and so, uh, you know, so that was the, that was the start there in Lampasas. And then later that summer, as I said, I lived out in the country and we had a screened in front porch. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I, I didn't know anybody who coon hunted. And so I never, I thought, well, this is a one-time deal. You know, I, I'm, I'm just a kid. I don't, you know, have any wherewithal to do anything about it. But, but out, later that summer, I heard the unmistakable sound of hounds down on Fish Creek, uh, which was about a half mile south of where I lived. Uh, in any, in any event, I, I just begged my mother, I said, please, please drive me down there. Uh, uh, you know, so I maybe um, by chance, I might be able to see who it, who it is or whatever. And, and so we went, she did drive me down there. It's, it's kind of funny in this day and age, you'd almost be scared to, but back then we didn't give it a thought. And so she drove me down to Fish Creek. Um, where this guys, when we got down there and there was no Studebaker car pulled off the side of the, the ditch there. And sure enough, uh, I, sometimes I believe things happen for a reason. I saw some lights coming, uh, back towards the vehicle from the Creek, a couple of lights. And then sure enough, uh, here in a few minutes, here come two guys and, and here's these hounds. Uh, mainly black and tan, but there were a couple of great walkers too. Uh, and, and they had been obviously been coon hunting down there and coming out. And so, you know, I introduced myself and they were from Grand Prairie. In fact, right there, you know, the closest city to where I lived and, and, uh, Bill Smith was the older guy and Maurice Montgomery was the younger and so I introduced myself, told them about, you know, my hunting down there at my uncle's in Lampasas. And so they said, well, we'll, you know, we'll give you a call. And so sure enough, first Mr. Smith called me. Uh, and then later uh, Maurice and I got to hunting. And so, so that's it. The, the story for me really began that, that summer night down on Fish Creek when they came out of there with those those, um, well, McDonald black and tans, and like I say, a couple of great walkers. You know, it's amazing uh, how many times, and I know Chris Powell's probably thinking about this as, as you're talking, uh, we had, uh, Jerry Mall, uh, the, uh, director of field operations for PKC on the show not long ago. And he talked about a similar experience of, of hearing hounds treat on the creek near their farm and going to explore to see what happened. And I can look back at my dad's uh, experience was the same of laying in bed uh, upstairs in the old farmhouse and listen to a neighbor's dog trail up the creek. So it's amazing how that uh, is a, a, a scenario that's played out probably hundreds and hundreds of times. Uh, um, down through the years, but, uh, well, okay. You mentioned Mr. Smith and Mr. Montgomery there. Who, who were some of the early influences on your life as a houndsman, Sid? 
Well, of course, initially they were, and the, and, and in fact, uh, it was strictly, and they were 99% strictly pleasure hunters. I mean, they they hunted, between the two of them, they probably didn't hunt five competition events in their lifetime. But, but uh, having said that, um, for a couple of years there, it was strictly pleasure hunting. Uh, and then in 64, uh, I went to the, they decided they wanted to go to the famous Texas state hunt, which in those days was held at Fort Parker state park, uh, near Mahia, Texas. In, in any event, I was thrilled beyond words because my mother let me skip school on a, a Friday, uh, which, you know, that, that was just a double win, win, you know, I was, I was <laughs> beside myself to go to this big hunt. Uh, but also to be able to miss school, I mean, that was uh, how, how much better could it get? And so even though I didn't hunt in the state hunt, uh, they hunted in it on that, that Friday night. Um, and so that was uh, actually one other small UKC hunt down at Golson, Texas, north of Waco, Maurice, and I'd gone to that and seen a dog show during the daytime. Even Even though we didn't hunt in the hunt, we just watched the dog show. So those two events in 64 were my first taste of any kind of uh, competition type things. Um, and there, there again, Mr. Smith and Maurice just weren't big into that the organized end of it really. So, so that was just kind of a snapshot for me. But so after that uh, is when I really, uh, a year later in 65, in October of 65, uh, my mother, as I said, taught school in Arlington. There was a uh, sixth grade, she taught sixth grade, and a sixth grade girl in there named Judy Higgins, uh, just one day out of the blue, told my mom, I guess, you know, just, I don't know what all they were talking about. She said, my daddy's a coon hunter. And my mother kind of laughed and said, well, my son's a coon hunter. And so that's how I met James Higgins. And James, uh, who was, you know, the, uh, along with Mr. Smith and Maurice, I always considered him one of my three coon hunting godfathers. And, and when I got to meet James, uh, he was already into the registered treeing walkers. Um, and he worked for the uh, railroad and was stationed in Arlington in those days. And uh, so that's, that's how James Higgins and I got started. Well, Sid, you mentioned the Texas State Hunt, and I want to continue with this uh, your involvement with the sport, but I think our listeners would really find interesting uh, uh, an account or a description of the Texas State Hunt. I, You mentioned in the 60s, and of course it was not until 1983 in September after going to the UKC in January of that year that I attended my first Texas State Championship. And uh, for anybody that's listening that attended one of those uh, state championships during that era of the 80s or 90s, and I'm sure that you can take it back a lot farther than that, Sid, uh, one of the most phenomenal events that I've ever attended, unique uh, in many ways. Um, and, uh, just, just tell our listeners a little bit about the Texas state hunt, uh, how it was conducted, uh, um, the atmosphere there and all it, it, it's just a great piece of, uh, coon hunting history, uh, that I think our listeners would enjoy. 
Well, and if you go back to the back to the beginning, and this is before my time that involved with coon hunting anyway, uh, the the germination for the state hunt, the Texas state hunt, really went back to the old mountain music type hunts that Eddie Ross, the famous Midwest promoter, put on. Uh, going back to the 50s, and so the 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 the, the early start of it was back then, and, and it just kept getting bigger and bigger, um, and in fact outgrew Fort Parker State Park location, and that's when I believe it's I believe 1969 is when it went to Fairfield. Just kept getting bigger and bigger and bigger, and then and it's uh, it's it's kind of interesting that you mentioned that that 83 those early 80 time frame. Uh, was when it was at its crescendo. Uh, I mean, it was in fact the largest UKC hunt, uh, if not the largest hunt period in in the United States. I mean, we're talking 300 plus dogs and both nights, you know. So it was it was a huge hunt um, and and a, and a pretty big show too. Uh, uh, but but the hunt was what was really so big. But the, the, to describe the Texas State hunt, it, it was more like a I always thought of it as a modern day version or a Texas modern day version of the old rendezvous that the mountain men back in the Jim Bridger, Kit Carson days. It was more like a happening than just, just a hunt. I mean, you had, you had people, uh, you had mule riders that coon hunted that would come in there. You had the old dog trader guys and, and gals, and then you had, you had uh, the, the, the more, if you want to call it that, more serious mainline type competition hunters. You had people coming from all over, even what, even if they weren't going to hunt in the hunt uh, or even showing the show or whatever, they came there to, to visit, to, to buy, in some cases, supplies and, and so on. So, and, and, you know, there was, a, there was a band and there was a dance and, and and uh, it was just a happening I, I you know the best way i know to describe it, it was it was a happening it was a big rendezvous people marked their calendars um back in the day it's, it was in october the second saturday in october but over time bow hunting kind of came into the fore so they did move it to the second uh weekend in, in september for many many years but uh, just uh uh, it, it was just unique, and, I, and I'm not saying there are not other been other events through the years, and certainly any old timers listen to this and say, well, I kind of, you know, my state event back in the day may have been like that, and so on. But the Texas State Hunt was, it was a truly legendary event. Well, as I remember, you know, my impression when I first went there is you walked around the grounds. It was at one central building that housed the kitchen. And that's usually, well, it was where I set up the UKC table to do business there. And it happened to be the only building on the grounds with air conditioning. <laughs> but as right. I remember, the kitchen, you know, was on one side where you could walk up and order food. On the other end of that building was a stage. And there was a local prison band that played there. Uh, as I recall, in the early days, and the music was, was great and uh, typical uh, for Texas and uh, people were dancing that Texas two-step and there was just such an atmosphere and as you walked along the aisleways outside these little 
I'm going to call them lean-tos, but little roofed, open-sided structures were everywhere. Vendors were set up in those areas. Um, There were areas where people camped under those shelters. There was always, uh, the usually the older hunters, playing 42 uh, with dominoes. um, And that uh, incessant droning of the PA system, you know, drawing the dogs, calling the dogs. And, boy, I get a lump in my throat as I think about some of those hunters and those people that were such moving forces in that uh, organization down through the years that have gone on. Miss Billy Woodward and and uh, and uh, uh, our, our, our good friend Dallas Sanders and uh, just on and on the people that had such an impact uh, down through the years. Uh, and uh, it was just, to me, one of the most unique, uh, enjoyable events that uh, all year long, it came right on the heels of uh, uh, Autumn Oaks for me. It was sandwiched between Autumn Oaks and the UKC World Championship. But man, I enjoyed going to Fairfield, Texas every year. It was just really a tremendous event. Yeah, and I and I I just uh, it's it's hard to add to that really, but but that that's true. I mean, it just uh, um, like I say, you'd have to experience it to really to understand and get a feeling for it because you you did back in the day. In fact, there were some quote unquote name hunters and, and stuff who came to it from other parts of the country, um, and uh, and and. And but it was still primarily a Texas hunt. People came from all over, all over the state. But but uh, uh, it just there was a there was a, a flavor, a feel that like none other that I've ever that I've ever really uh, been involved with. It was just like uh, uh, you know some of those. There were a lot of those old local hunters down in that part of the world, uh, part of Texas that. You know, they were they were legends in the area. I mean, there are people that in an, at the national scene no one ever heard of, but because they never advertised or anything like that. But they, you know, had some tremendous dogs and and were, you know, well known within the within the ranks of of Texas coon hunting. But uh, the Dallas Sanders, uh, uh, oh boy, the list goes on and on of. of uh, of uh, those who were involved with it, uh, you know, like say for years in some cases that, uh, that really, I mean, you could, you know, they were just almost a lifelong type dedication to it. And so, uh, you know, and I was on the board at one time myself, uh, back in the day. And so, uh, I have a great appreciation for, for all those who have, who have been involved with it through the years. Chris, you have anything? Well, you were reading my mind. I was just typing you a message. You know, as I talk to, you know, I'm I'm a few years younger than you are, Sid, and uh, been involved in our our state organization as well and and still talk to a lot of hunters here. And, but it seems like there's a trend nationwide and our hunt numbers, the, the organized hunt, competition hunts, the numbers seem to be down. 
we've got an older generation of hunters who remember those great days. I don't know how many of those state Texas champ hunters, championship hunters or hounds you can name through the years, but probably the thing that you remember most is the atmosphere there. And our younger listeners hear this and they want to try to restore some of that. So what can you tell our listeners uh, what seed of hope or, or how can they organize something like this? Is it worth, is it worth redoing in your opinion or are those, are those days gone by for us? Well, I, I think number one, uh, firstly, it certainly would be worth redoing. And I think that, uh, uh, to speak of, of those, you know, uh, the times change in, in everything and coon hunting is no different. So, so what Steve and I would consider the golden era uh, you know, somebody who's 20 years old now, they may have a different golden era 40 or 50 years from now. Mm-hmm. And it would be just, it would just be somehow, somehow different. But, but in answer to your question, I think where, where maybe we've lost some of it is, is that we've, and, and a part of it's just part of society. It's not just to do with coon hunting, but we've kind of lost that you know, as I saw the Texas state hunt through the years, like so many other things, it's not it's not what it used to be. There's just there's no two ways about it. But back then, it was kind of come one, come all. Uh, there were you know no real restrictions on, on 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 anything as far as you know. Yeah, maybe you're not big into the competition part of it, but you, you you're welcome. You know, come bring your dogs, talk, you know, trade mm-hmm. dogs, do whatever mm-hmm. it is you like to do. And I'm afraid we've, we've gotten a little in this, in this modern era, we've gotten a little too, uh, we, we've gotten too just, you know, to the point, the only point being, Hey, I show up uh, 30 minutes before deadline, enter, uh, hunt an hour and, and go home type mentality. Um, so, uh, I would say that, uh, if if the youngsters were wanting to try to bring back that other stuff, you kind of you would have to kind of cultivate it and let people know. Well, you know, this isn't uh, just a bunch of uh, you know high dollar guys with hunting high dollar dogs for high dollar owners and so on and so yeah. forth. You, you kind of have to you kind of have to remember where this sport came from and how it all got started in the first place. And so I, I don't know that there's an easy answer, but I know that uh, if I had to give one, uh, just based on my observation of the germination of the state hunt through the years, uh, is is the more exclusive you try to be, the smaller you're going to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the more inclusive, the more inclusive you are, the bigger you're going to be. And Sid, I think that's exactly what Chris and I are trying to accomplish with this podcast is to bring all hound people of all persuasions under one roof, under one tent and say, look, we're all in this thing together. And like you said there, no matter if you've got a little dog there, he doesn't, you didn't know, you know, his daddy was old handy and his mama was old ready. And, and, you know, and you've got a dog and you go coon hunting with him and he trees a possum now and then, well, good, you know, do you have fun? Uh, and, uh, to bring all of the people together, uh, with hounds so that we can, uh, not only, 
uh, present a unified front when legislative issues come up and so forth. But man, that we can have a good time together. You know, we can just get together and share stories and experiences and, and learn from each other and laugh at each other and laugh with each other. And that was the kind of thing I think that was happening there in Texas. You know, <laughs> I've still got a little plastic pencil uh, <laughs> that I got at the Texas State Hunt. And you might remember these, Sid. They gave them away to everybody. It was yep. a little pencil, and I had a little cap on it, and it said something about this little pencil of mine or something. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> it was, but, you know, I mean. This uh, little pencil was, of mine is going to make me a Texas State champion. <laughs> <laughs> oh hopefully you won't use that pencil in the wrong way <laughs> you'll, you'll only write down the account of the hunt as it happens right but uh, yeah. you know i mean that that's true and uh wow and i'm thinking as you're talking you guys uh have sparked something here with me is maybe we ought to strive to have some kind of a rendezvous of hounds people on a national scale somewhere that would be somewhat convenient to everybody to attend a come one come all doesn't matter what you hunt doesn't matter what kind of dogs you hunt it with doesn't matter if you got a seven generation pedigree or you don't have a clue uh, that you're welcome, you're a hounds person. Uh, and just, uh, of course, I know I'm dreaming here, but that's how things get started. But, you know, wouldn't that be an awesome, awesome thing? Well, we get uh, we get requests all the time. You know, I, I get messages daily. You know, you need to do one about squirrel hunting. You need to do one about hog hunting. You need to do one about rabbit hunting. And, and we try to juggle all that into our schedule here. But But what you're talking about, Sid, is actually what we're trying to do. I don't care if you chase field mice with your hound, you know, there is something here for you. And I think a lot of times where we, where we're at now, you know, your big game hunter or your, your pleasure hunter, a lot of times doesn't feel like there is anything for them on the competition scene and the competition hunt scene says, well, you know, I don't bear hunt. So that doesn't mean anything to me when what we're talking about is a coming together a rendezvous of all people that share the passion of chasing their preferred game with a hound and that's the common thread here that that i think we need to expose again and get right down to the fiber of this elaborate quilt that we've made out of hound sports but the common fiber is the love of following the hound and understanding that that Sid Underwood in Texas shares the same passion as Chris Powell in southeastern Indiana. Yeah, and that's a, and that is and that is a, the the type of thought process. I, I mean, I remember you know back in the day that uh, there were people who would come to that state hunt uh, literally almost a week in advance, um, and so. Um, mm -hmm. you know, it was a, a rendezvous or a happening and, and, and yeah, you know, I, I think for sure if, if, if it was a, a way to engender that kind of thought process, uh, because there, there, there's a lot of, there, we all, all three of us certainly know this and, 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 and most people I think probably do, you know, when you look at the, the coon dog magazines or you look at any other official publication or if you or if you just follow certain aspects of the sport, 
we really forget that out there in the hinterlands, there are still people that we never heard of or never knew existed who still uh, are involved with hounds and hunting and stuff. And they, you know, you might, like I say, unless you live within uh, a mile of them, you'll, you'll never know they were even around. And, and there's a lot of those folks who, you know, they they are strictly pleasure hunters or whatever, or they just dabble in it, but they still have an interest. And so if there was a way, uh, and you would think in this modern era with the communication capabilities we have, there would be ways of, of reaching a lot of these folks that, that you, you know, uh, you could, you could have something, something similar to what I think we're all alluding to. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Well, let's talk about those Fish Creek hounds, Sid. I know that uh, you you mentioned earlier, and I got you off on the Texas State hunt, and uh, and that was a, a great trip uh, down memory lane for me. Uh, what about your involvement with your your buddy James Higgins, and and when you started this Fish Creek hounds uh, uh, breeding program, or or what have you? Well, I first met James, you know, after the what I discussed hurt his daughter being in my mother's class in October of '65, and we went pleasure hunting uh, one one night, and then uh, and then we we, we just uh, you know I I don't know if either one of us were sure about how that was going to come out, but long story short, uh, we really didn't get back together till the following April, April of 1966. Um, to go hunting, um, and in fact, I remember the exact date. It was April 19th because we we did go pleasure hunting out at Springtown, Texas, uh, northwest of Fort Worth, and had a great hunt and so great. And and uh, and by that time, I had started taking the American Cooner and Full Cry, so I decided uh, since I was one of the world's greatest writers, I would write the story about it. And so <laughs> so so I wrote this. I wrote this story called Coon Hunting Texas Style, and sure enough, the Cooner published it. And so I, I so I thought, you know, I, I must be the Hemingway of the hound sport, you know. But but nonetheless, that that's a, a quick uh, quick how we got started. And James had to register tree and walkers. Uh, his uh, mentors had been pretty much W. F. Durden in Dallas and J. W. Swan in Jacksboro, and the common thread they had. Jacksboro's northwest of Fort Worth, about 80 miles. But the common thread that Mr. Durden and Mr. Swan had was that they had dogs from Shetler Sonny Boy bloodlines from Ohio, you know, John Shetler and 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 Finley Riverbred dogs. And so James hunting with them, uh, he had hunted other breeds and stuff as a youth, but but got started into the red, not just registered treeing walkers but treeing walkers of those bloodlines and there was some Hirschberger uh, blood mixed in there too dick Hirschberger, who was very well known back in the day anyway so that's how we got started and in the night in the summer of 66 james and i had started the fish creek kennel name uh and and the dogs we registered uh, and pups that we raised uh, you know we obviously put that that name on them so that's how the fish creek hounds got started well there's some history back there of some of another famous dog over in alabama that had 
uh, Fish Creek dog in its ancestry, but wasn't a walker dog. That that's true, and in fact, uh, it really, if you if you look at uh, uh, the, the the most famous national level, uh, where the name Fish Creek, uh, ironically enough, where the name Fish Creek uh, is involved, I mean, and that's beyond. I mean, I put ads in the Tree and Walker Handbook and that sort of thing, but uh, but uh, uh, we, James and I had a mutual friend in New Boston, Texas, which is in Northeast Texas named Jimmy Woodard. And Jimmy, uh, had an outstanding, uh, single registered red tick English male, an old buck, Woodard's buck. And then, then he had purchased from James a, uh, a registered treeing walker female, who was out of that bloodlines that we'd been been hunting there for some years, and uh, Red Bayou Jane was her name. Well, Jimmy decided he wanted to uh, raise pups from Buck and Jane, so of course he had the single register Red Bayou Jane over as an English. Uh, even though she was a registered tree and walker, and he bred her, of course, to Buck. And and I really don't know about all the progeny, but the, the, but I do know about one, uh, which ended up being Bashir's blue boy. Uh, his call name was Junior, and Bill Bashir's was down in what we call Deep East Texas, down in the Southeast Texas area, not too far out of Houston. And Bill Bashir's had had him initially, and he got getting a, a pretty big reputation uh, and then of course uh, as you alluded to ended up uh, the, the, the those dogs and ended up uh, with I believe it's R.F. Dickey over in Alabama is the one who really really promoted them heavy and so all those English dogs uh, and and Bashir's Blue Boy was kind of a blue English but but a lot of but but that from that red tick sire a lot of those uh, the the the, the dogs were they were red tick as well as some blue English out of there that that the those uh, those dogs were in fact descended from on one side anyway from Fish Creek tree and walkers or tree and walker uh, Finley River type bred tree and walkers uh, and and in fact if you if you went back in history and looked at a lot of the photographs of the original uh, the ones really close up a lot of them had the old telltale cornmeal color on their face uh, which was uh, you know just pretty much endemic to the uh, you know the sunny boy friendly river type dog so so that's kind of how all that history got started so but if you get any even in this day and age probably if you got a big enough pedigree on something a lot of the english dogs you'd see you'd see fish creek in the background i got you well what about some of the early hounds or maybe names that that our listeners would recognize that you hunted with there in Texas uh, down through the years, Sid? Well, the, probably the ones that, uh, that they would recognize um, that I hunted with or had some involvement with, um, although I did not hunt with him when I was, was a field rep, I, I did a uh, hunt down in Personville, Texas, 
where the famous house's lipper was entered and in fact won the hunt when when Tom Hopkins had him. Uh, so so I had a little involvement with him there. Um, and then some of the other dogs um, that uh, that I uh, either hunted with or was friends with. I, I, I of course known Delton Hall for years and and of the Atkin Tar Rattler fame. So so um, so I saw Rattler after he first bought him. He said, "I think I finally got the dog that I've always been looking for." Just as another example. Now I hunted with other breeds too as well. Now I hunted with some of the McDonald Black and Tans. I've alluded back to the, when I first started. Uh, and so there was, you know, they were out of John McDonald's old night rider dog. So there was some well-known black and tans, you know, that I hunted with way back in the day, uh, some, some famous red bones that a lot of them were more famous in Texas than, than they were, uh, maybe on a national scale. Not, not, not a whole lot of the Texas people through the years, quite honestly, uh, were ever real heavy into advertising these dogs. So, um, so I, I've, I've been involved with a lot of dogs that would be named, named dogs down in here that people knew about, but not so much other places. Now, uh, Mears Big Stride, which James and I had a mutual friend named Murphy Mears, Big Stride was a dog that uh, the old Walker promoter Ralph Capehart advertised nationally for quite some time. And he, Stride had some, he was, uh, I believe, out of some Alani Mears, Finley River stuff, as I recall. So, you know, involved with some dogs that were named dogs, but mainly they were, the, most of them that I hunted with were, they were well known in this, uh, in this part of the world, but not so much on a national scale. Well, I know when I went to Texas in 1969 in the Air Force there and immediately met some coon hunters and began to go to the hunts and so forth and in the conversations around the tables after the hunt and so forth, there were many names that came up during that time. And there were dogs such as Norman's Coon Stopper, Crow's Boss, uh, the uh, blue tick man, Tom Broom there in Texas, I believe, or maybe he was Oklahoma. I don't remember for sure. Uh, of course, uh, John McDonald uh, was very popular. And uh, so there was that whole Texas culture of coon hunting that I that I uh, found that was a bit foreign to me. You know, I, I really didn't know these people, but I, I immediately saw that there was a very vibrant, thriving community of coon hunters in Texas back at that time. Uh, yeah, well, there was. And, yeah. I, I was just going to say Tom Broom was, in fact, from Gorman, Texas, which is out what we would call West Central Texas, out in the peanut country, and and he was well-known in blue tick circles, you know, back in the day. So that, that's just one example. Yeah. Chris, you have anything? Well, let's talk about your work as I'm not a field sleep. rep. I'm not sleeping. I just uh, have my mic off. <laughs> yeah. No, I haven't okay. got anything. I, great. You're doing a great job, and I'm I'm just uh, enjoying the interview. So go ahead. All right. Put that on my review, will you? Sure. <laughs> okay. Well, uh, I whether I hired you or hired you or you were there already Sid. we had a great time uh and uh, during the years that you were a field rep for ukc do you have any 
thoughts, memories uh, uh, that you'd like to share about that uh, that time in your yeah, life? Yes, absolutely. And, and in fact, as I've thought about it, you did, in fact, hire me. I mean, I, I had been a, a either a judge, a show judge, or, or master of hounds prior to that. But you're, you're correct. When you came on us, when I came on as field rep uh, for three years, and it, it was just a, uh, yeah, I have some memories. Of, uh, one thing was the snow stacked up 10 feet high at the <laughs> Kalamazoo Airport. That, that would be one. <laughs> but uh, during the meetings, uh, you know, those meetings that we'd have. But no, no uh, uh, you know, I, the, the, the camaraderie that, you know, that we had or I had with the other field reps and certainly with you and, and Fred and, and just the whole experience and and and, and it was a three-year run, as, uh, as I recall. And and uh, I really just I, I enjoyed, you know, I enjoyed the whole aspect of it really I and, and it I don't know it's enjoyable per se but but uh, to do my part as far as uh, making sure that the the uh, the uh, qualifying events and so on that I went to uh, you know were, were to the letter uh, you know you, you in in all parts of the world you know you will you know you'll sometimes encounter uh, hunters that may have a reputation um and i was and and i was always and I, I'm, I'm being kind here but I, i'll just say that i was always out front of that because i knew most of them uh, at least a little bit uh, but even if i didn't by the time i got through with my speech before they went to the woods they knew what how the cow ate the cabbage so to speak uh, and so i never I, knock on wood i really didn't have almost no problems i would say during that era when uh, as far as the, the qualifying events well for for that matter during some of the satellite stuff with the world hunts themselves but yeah the camaraderie with the the fellow field reps from all over the country um just uh just a very enjoyable time in, in my life period not just in, in coon hunting so i'll always treasure it you know, as I look back over my years with the UKC, that's the thing that I think about most. You know, we tend to remember those things that, that we like the best, just like a, a favorite old hound or whatever. And uh, it would be hard to try to describe to our listeners the kind of camaraderie we had. Uh, I think at one time there, for most of that time, there were 15 field reps working uh, the country. Uh, we had uh, uh, several uh, RQEs, many of which would draw 100 dogs or more back in those days. I remember having the Century Club for the field reps that entered more than 100 dogs, and we'd present those plaques at the World Hunt, and there would always be several of them. And uh, But the times that we had uh, rooming together, uh, uh, around the entry tables, uh, around dinner time, and we'd always try to get there a, a day or so early and, and have some type of an evening out with some entertainment and a nice meal together. And and um, to see the families of the field reps, you know, and I look back and I could really get uh, a big lump thinking about some of the uh, dear, dear people that I knew back in those days. And there's one couple that comes to mind to me every single time. And I know you'll remember him, Sid, was that was Paul and Francis Toon from Tennessee. 
the black and tan people. Do you remember them? Yeah, I remember them very, very well. And they were, you know, uh, gosh, it's it's hard to believe how time has has flown. You know, uh, my heavens, here I am, 70 plus. And I guess back in those days, I was still in my 30s. But, you know, they were like all of our grand, they were grandparents for all of us. Absolutely. And they just, uh, they were, they were the epitome of just, uh, uh, down home southern style uh, i mean lady and gentleman i mean I, I don't know how else to say it right exactly i think all of us who worked with the tunes will very fondly remember them and what sweet sweet incredible people they were and i used to worry about them you know being out there in the dark of night at three or four o'clock in the morning leaving a clubhouse with a with a, a bag full of money <laughs> at all, but uh, they, I think they were so revered and so respected that there had been a lot of club members that would have stepped up in their defense if anyone had tried to give them any problems, but there's just so many. Yeah. You know, I'd like to name them all. Uh, Jim Simpson comes to mind and there are just so many down through the years and I've got to get all that into writing and maybe with a little uh, paragraph about each one. Uh, but that was really the highlight of my entire career with those times spent with the field reps at UKC. Jim Simpson was certainly a legend right here and in, in where I'm at. Jim was one of those guys that you could uh, run into at a hunt. I never met a more courteous and, and um, polite person in my life. And he started bringing his grandkids around. Uh, about the time that I I split the central Indiana scene, but uh, Jim was certainly a legend among among hunters here in central Indiana. Well, I certainly don't want to toot my horn in any way, but you know I always tried to pick the very cream of the crop of people in a given area. Uh, my my buddy uh, Nubbin Moore and I have traveled thousands of miles together over the la- uh, last few years, and he was one of those people in Alabama, and on and on the list goes. But uh, I think, uh, Sid, you certainly uh, fill a bill in that, that aspect as well. I want to talk to you about your involvement with the bench shows. Um, you are are considered one of the most uh, sought-after bench show judges for major events in the country. How did you get involved with that aspect, and, and do you have any stories for us? Well, uh, the way I got involved with it, I, um, I, well, I had started showing a little bit myself, and and I would go to these shows, local-type shows, and, you know, people in the background would be making comments about this or that, and and i you know i tried to stray from that as much as i could but I, but i got to thinking you know what uh you know i'm not going to be one of those who just sits back and and critiques the judge or whatever i'm going to jump into the fray myself and so consequently i had been showing dogs myself and watching shows for about five years anyway in 1972 i believe it was is when i got my uh, license and uh so uh, of course i got started and and i I, hopefully i've done a good job through the years or at least some people think so and so long story short i over time i i was able to judge a 
this Texas State show and some others, and you know, one thing led to another, and and uh, and I'm 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 not going to toot my horn either, but but I guess with the exception of the Grand American, I think I've basically judged every major show there is, and, and most of them more than once. So so I, I and I, I I like to think that that's twofold that people know I know what I'm talking about it, and I'm fair. Uh, and so well I, that I, I, I think that goes without saying what do you enjoy most about judging Ben shows Sid uh well the thing I most enjoy particularly at the local level is to help people who are maybe new to it or inexperienced or whatever and to not get them discouraged you know if they don't win on a particular day to try to give them some pointers and stuff now then, you know, I mentioned I've judged the, 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 the on the total other 180 degree opposite of that these these big major shows. Uh, you know, everybody who walks around the corner knows pretty well is fast on the draw, and you know is is, is going to have a real outstanding dog. And uh, and I've I've had people through the years they say, man, isn't that pressure to judge all these you know at these large shows all these extremely uh, nice looking dogs i said i said i would rather judge a show like that than a seven or eight dog show with all mediocre dogs any day of the week because uh, you know number one you know you're going to pick a good dog let's start there you know people may not agree with your choice but but they they probably won't disagree that you picked a good dog so i'll start there but uh but yeah just the um I'm just amazed too the the metamorphosis of that all through the years um, of 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 where we've come with it as a sport and um, and I'm you know I, I uh, I'm primarily a pleasure hunter and I really always have been but I do enjoy the competition aspects of the sport and that includes being you know being a show judge and and uh, and I certainly I have many many friends who are uh, some kind of exclusively and others kind of not so exclusively who just show and stuff. But, but I've, I've met many wonderful people through the years in that aspect as well. So there again, I, I hate to get back to the people thing all the time, but I know so many wonderful people all over the, certainly Eastern half of the United States that, you know, that I'd never have met if I hadn't done this. For sure. Well, I wonder, uh, looking at uh, your activity as a historian, obviously in, in your book bears that out, but uh, you've had a pretty intense interest in the history of the Walker breed. Were, at one time, were you preparing to write a book about tree and walker history, or was it? Uh, at, did I hear incorrectly on that? I I had kind of floated the idea of maybe doing a book, um, but then I, I really had just it just uh, uh, I just got sidetracked and decided not to. But having said that, I did do uh, and I, I have done articles on a number of the famous people in the Tree and Walker history, uh, uh, John Shetler, uh, you know. Uh, I've done stuff on John Monroe. I've done stuff. Uh, Dick Hershberger uh, enjoyed doing that. Dwayne Clark. Uh, a lot of the 
you know, the pioneer types, um, I really, really, really enjoyed doing some articles in the, in the coon dog, uh, magazines, uh, on them. And, and so, um, Dalton Hall down in Texas is another one. I mean, just different ones who had been in the in the Walker business for years and years, and uh, so so you know didn't uh, the, the book idea kind of went by the wayside. But I still enjoyed the the articles that I've done on people, well known Walker people. Well, uh, I know that I'm experiencing a little bit of pixelation or something here in our. Uh, in our feed i don't know if that's carrying through to our listeners hopefully not uh but at any rate uh, i've noticed over the years sid that you've been uh very faithful to send articles into the coonhound publications when a member of the texas coon hunting community uh has passed on and and i've always appreciated that very much uh how did you uh, uh, begin that practice, and uh, what's the history on that? Well, yeah, part of it is my interest in history of, of all kinds and all levels, but uh, really going back to my newspaper days, one of the, uh, at the Arlington Daily News, one of my certainly early assignments was, uh, you know, to, to, to write the ob- obituary column, and, and, and of course, uh, you typically you would get some sort of write-up from the, the local funeral home or whatever, and then, of course, you would edit it for, for the purposes of the paper. So I kind of, I guess I kind of had that history, but, but my real interest was I've always thought, and it kind of goes back to what we were talking about, this rendezvous-type idea and stuff. If I knew of someone, you know, and that person, they may not be known more than a 10-square-mile area around where they live as far as, their fame or, or lack of in hunting, coon hunting or whatever, they still, they still, you know, traipse down the creek like all the rest of us. And, and I always just believe anybody who was involved, you know, deserved mention. And so certainly I've written about obscure people that no one had ever heard of to, to people certainly well-known, certainly in Texas, ranks for sure and, and in many cases known even beyond that because of their involvement maybe in the organized end of things but but it's just a it's just a thing that means a lot to me i just hate to see someone's life uh, you know go by the wayside who's been involved in this sport uh you know and not and not get some sort of, of mention because you know some people uh you know have had a history of putting out full page ads for years on end others have never put an ad in a, a magazine or anywhere else. So we have the whole spectrum of people. Uh, but I just, uh, and particularly those who, uh, who I personally have known have, have been involved with local clubs and stuff, the, the backbone of the organized end of our sport, you know, a lot of them, sometimes they, they kind of go over the wayside because they're kind of localized or whatever. So, so I just think they deserve credit. And whenever I know about it, I'm going to, I'm going to write them up. Well, thanks to you for doing it, Sid, because I know it's appreciated very much, not only by the families and close friends of those people, but by everyone that, that, uh, sadly enough, you know, we, we meet, uh, uh, people, uh, through the obituaries that we, uh, 
immediately say, I wish I'd known that person. And uh, so kudos to you for, for that. Well, for sure. I appreciate it. It's a, it's a, it's a labor of love. And, and as long as I can, I'm going to continue to do it. Well, you know, I, I have a quick question for you and I know we're getting along in time here. Uh, and it's been a fantastic visit for me as of course as you and I, anytime we get together, we like to talk about the good days and the funny stories that happened along the way and so forth. But what what's the thermometer on uh, on Texas coon hunting today, do you think? Uh, do you still get out to a few of the hunts around? And uh, are you are you running dogs? Are you still competing? And uh, Just what what's the picture of coon hunting or, or hound hunting there in Texas uh, today? Well, it, it's still it's it's still pretty vibrant. I mean, it's uh, as far as um, you know the organized end of it. There's still a lot of interest now. Uh, and and answer your question, yes, I still hunt, and yes, I still. And in fact, here just recently, uh, was uh, fortunate enough to win a local PKC hunt here in Paris, and then and then just uh, just very recently too was uh, fortunate enough to win a night champion cast uh, hunt up in atoka oklahoma which is not too far from, from where i live so so yeah i still i'm inter- still interested in it uh, i don't uh, my salad days of competition hunting are long gone but i'll tell you i have to confess i'm an old fuddy-duddy on the one hand when the when the shorter hunts started coming out i wasn't sure about it but now that i'm uh, three score and ten plus i like them better every day <laughs> <laughs> preach it i do i do uh, i do still dabble in that uh, and i still pleasure hunt just regular as rain I'm, i've partnered with tom froze up in pawnee oklahoma and he likes females and i like females so between the two of us we've got a kind of a stable full and i'll i'll typically keep one or two down here and he has the rest up there but but so yeah, I'm very much still involved in it. And as far as the thermometer on Texas hunting, uh, it's like everywhere else. Uh, there's a lot of events, and probably too many, quite honestly. But but I think that genie's escaped the bottle and probably not going back in. But having said that, uh, there's uh, I, there are a fair number of uh, uh, the younger set that I see around, which is uh, which of course I think is a wonderful thing that that are hunting in, in, you know, the, the various registries. And so it's still, it's still, it's not, uh, you know, I'm not going to uh, pretend that it's like it was back in the day for more reasons than one, but, but there's still, there's still a fair amount of, of interest. Well, that Texas state hunt now is, has been moved to the spring. Has it not? It, it was moved to the spring, uh, you know, it went from October to September, and now it's in the spring to, to kind of dodge, you know, not being around the Autumn Oaks uh, time frame, uh, as well as uh, in Texas, uh, you know, in, in, in early September in Texas, you know, we're still typically blazingly blazing hot down here, <laughs> so... So, you know, April, You of course, another thing about our part of the world, you, you do roll the dice a little bit in April because we can have some of the most beautiful weather you can imagine. We can have some of the most dangerous weather on the face of the planet in April. So it's a little bit of a dice roll, but, but nonetheless, it was decided to, to opt for the cooler 
uh, weather and, and also to kind of, like I say, uh, get away from some of the other major stuff that's going on. So, yes, it is in April now. It did move back to Fairfield, which I'm very pleased with. It's just kind of the natural place for it to be, in my opinion. Uh, and and no, and that's no dispersion, I might add, against Madisonville area, which was a fantastic and is fantastic coon hunting area. But the, the grounds there were they were they were they were they, they were just kind of Spartan and kind of didn't have a lot of character right. to them. Right. And it just didn't have a, in my opinion, the the set the the literal setting was not real appealing. Uh, and so, please, Madisonville people, don't throw darts at me. It's a great place, great coon hunting, great city and county. But that location, in my opinion, just wasn't as good as Fairfield. Well, I have to agree, having attended the events at both. And uh, Well, Chris, how did I do with this guest? Probably right up there with uh, Sid Underwood's ratings on Goodreads for Depression Desperados. He's got close to a five-star rating. So uh, <laughs> it was outstanding, and I, I just kind of sat back and listened to two old friends catch up and share a lot of knowledge, and, and I really appreciate you taking time to talk to us today sid and uh hope to get to meet you one day soon and share a hunt with you and and it's just a very interesting and entertain entertaining hour or so well i, I appreciate it so very much and and uh I echo i know what y'all would echo that we love this sport and so anything i can do pr wise and other or otherwise i'm always glad to help well, Sid, you've always been a great ambassador for the sport, not only there in Texas, but across the country, uh, extremely well respected in our Coonhound community. And it's just uh, been a great pleasure for me to have you on the podcast today. I, I think that our listeners uh, uh, will certainly agree with that. Um, and I hope to get you back on sometime. You're my go-to guy anytime I need to delve back into tree and walker history and some of my writings and especially texas history and i appreciate your your friendship first of all and your willingness to be uh to bail me out at times and uh and uh just uh, and you inspire me i'm going to be looking at 73 come october i got a new uh, young dog he's 14 months old now i'm hoping by springtime that he's going to be uh, where he needs to be and i'm going to get out there and try to compete i don't know if i can get make uh, very many of those uh, one mile walks uh to these deep and lonely hounds uh but uh, i'm sure mine's not going to be that type <laughs> but, <laughs> well uh, yeah. well I, I and i i appreciate appreciate that and and uh you know i, I think uh, this this great sport is it it it's it's one of the things certainly in our lives if we're involved in it that it does keep us keep 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 on keeping on which is i think good in many ways absolutely well chris i guess that wraps it up from my end well i just want to remind people i've been you know listening to this podcast but i've also been searching the internet for places that people could find sid underwood's book depression desperados it's available on amazon and several different outlets there uh, and I'd encourage people to take a look at that. And are you anywhere else on on the social media scene, Sid? Or are you? Well, it, it, 
it, it, I probably am an answer to your question, but but there again, the wild horse media in in uh, uh, in Fort Worth, it, they do have they do have copies as well, and so consequently, uh, there there's if they want a copy of the book, certainly they can get it. If they have if they can't get it anywhere else, they can contact me. Uh, you know, I do keep some copies, not a lot, but I do I do have some. So. Uh, I certainly don't mind working with anybody who's interested. Well, put me down for one. I'd love to read it. The uh, Okay. Yeah, that uh, era of American history. I had a ton of questions. We could do a whole podcast just on the book because I've just always been intrigued by that that point in our history and, and things like that. So put me down for a copy. That'd be awesome. All right, sounds good. You'll have to. Uh, I know you. I, I know you have my contact information, so you'll you'll need to give me yours. Uh, yeah. So yeah. We'll after, con- this, after this is over. You bet. You bet. Steve, that does it for me, buddy. Why don't you wrap it up here? Okay, Sid. We have a custom here on this podcast. We usually find a track of some kind or another to get after as we uh, fade into the uh, sunset here. Uh, we've got an old dusty coon track that's along the Concho River down there outside of San Angelo. And, man, I tell you what, we got a hound here named Bugler, I believe, that can take this track, but I'm not sure. But I'm I'm betting on one of those old Fish Creek counts can take it. But when we cut these dogs loose, there's one thing I want to remind you and Chris. You follow your hound, and I'll follow mine.